listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Katie Van Horn. And this is Jackie Clayton. And this is the Inclusive AF podcast. Dun, da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that a good Monday Monday uh, song for you? That's that all. That, I can sounded, give you. that really sounded like a Wednesday, but you know, whatever. I was it was very royal, like I was rolling out the carpet for yes uh, for the princess to come, Princess Jackie. Um, all right, Jackie. So, uh, how's your Monday going? Well, it's going well because I saw a video. Not sure if you saw it. It was a princess party. A little girl three years old, had a princess party. And at the party, a guest came, it was a dragon. And all of a sudden the princesses go, ah, and they have swords and shields and they start chasing <laughs> and beating this dragon. And I was like, this is the best, the you best, know? Best thing they ever. loved their princesses, but still could attack and bite the beast. And it was just the cutest video I saw all weekend. And so I really appreciated it. Well, and I like that it's also that they don't need the white knight. They, right. They're going to just handle it themselves. So yeah, it turns out. <laughs> I, I fully support that message. Um, yes. Okay, so we have a, a friend of ours on today. So uh, I'm going to turn it over, Peter, to you to have you uh, introduce yourself and, and share a little about who you are. And then we'll go from there. Okay, thank you, Katie. I am a retired law professor and a former economics professor. And I worked also at the Federal Trade Commission in the uh, Division of Consumer Protection as a staff economist. I guess the most unusual thing about me is that I uh, was a freshman at Princeton at the age of 14, and I graduated in three years at 17. So then I started grad school at 17, and um, I, it took me a little bit longer. As my mother, who got a PhD in biophysics, would say to me often, she got a PhD in three years and had two kids. What's my problem? I said, oh, I can't give birth. Wow. <laughs> I like your mom already. I like her. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's 93 and a professor at New York University Medical School in the Department of Biochemistry. And she's, she's not teaching anymore, but she's still doing research. And oh, she wow. says, I think I'll retire at 95. And I, uh, I, I, I haven't told her I retired yet completely. So she's going to call me a slacker. <laughs> she is that's awesome i love it i love it yes uh i mean it, it says just from that very quick intro it does seem like you're a slacker so i appreciate your mom's thoughts on that yeah <laughs> what are you talking about um, so tell me like so you are you know thinking about mathematics economics that type of thing where does your interest then in dei come from like how did how did you start to think about that yeah so my partner is uh the reason i started thinking about that actually when george george flood was murdered we were watching a lot of these uh, protests on television um and she said to me why don't you write something about this instead of using your mind to, to talk about securities regulation and insider trading why don't you write something useful uh <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. My partner, my partner is, uh, your life. <laughs> yeah, she's a Hispanic OBGYN who said to me once, your mother would like me better if I was a Chinese neurosurgeon or heart surgeon who played the piano and the violin, right? I said, yes, but why do you want to date my mother? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Right. That's a great That's question. Awesome. Uh, so I thought about it a lot and I said to her, I said, well, other people have worked on this question of um discrimination prejudice stereotyping and i said there are a lot of efforts to have um people be more inclusive and um to encourage diversity and equity although i said she said yeah i know what you're talking about because she goes like um at, at her job at temple she said they, they make us watch these videos and i said yes i they make us watch similar videos at colorado and I said, I'm not sure anyone who's a seething, race, rage, raging racist is going to be convinced by these. And I think most people who watch these go, yeah, this makes sense. You know, uh, I think, you know, 
Um, we should have a diversity of opinions because people have different backgrounds, different mindsets. So a team of people who are different are more likely to solve problems than a team of people who are identical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, economists have also thought about, I mean, I said, I said, lawyers have thought about this in terms of hate crimes, whether that will discourage um, racism. Um, I said, it's unclear because sometimes someone might want the honor, quote unquote, of committing a hate crime, right? Because they might brag about it. So I said, it's not good the direction of causality is correct. And I said, the other thing is, it's not always obvious whether uh, something was a hate crime. So when the uh, person in Atlanta uh, killed the uh, hairdressers, right? Some people thought, um, I, I think the sheriff said he had a bad day. Uh, but uh, some people thought it was a hate crime. In fact, it was reported that way in Korea. But in the U.S., it was not, the focus was not that most of the victims were Asian. Um, it, it just was like, it was a coincidence uh, that that happened. And I said, economists have also looked at uh, this issue, although in a way that it's kind of interesting because um there are different models of discrimination. Like one due to Gary Becker, who's a Nobel Prize winner, is that firms discriminate not because firms have a discriminatory intent, but their customers have prejudice. So they want to satisfy their customers' preferences or their employees' preferences. Um, and, and they're not willing to do something until someone else does. So like the first black person in baseball or football was a big thing, but once that happened, the floodgates opened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, the other sort of dominant model of uh, prejudice is due to lack of information. So the idea is employers don't know the productivity of a particular person, but they've hired people with different characteristics that are observable, um, but unalterable. Um, So the idea is if I hire a lot of uh, orange people and they turn out to be very productive, but purple people tend to argue then I might develop some beliefs about orange versus purple people. Now, the problem with this is if I think that um, people who are teal are not productive, I may never hire them or offer a very low wage for them. So therefore, I will get no disconfirming evidence. My beliefs will just stay wrong forever because there's nothing to test them. And this often leads to like uh, occupational um, segregation, like... um, you know, most of the people who I talk to as an orthopedic surgeon, uh, because I, I, I might have need a knee replacement, they're men and they're very macho and very um, competitive. And I asked someone who was a hand um, um, doctor why this is. She goes, it was a field that very few women went into until Title IX and women's sports happened. But before that, it was just just a, a male field. And she goes also, hip replacements and knee replacements were not as common as they are now and mm. as um, quick to do. So I, I said, I have a prejudice, which is I would like women doctors, women dentists, because I think they're more careful and more, um, they take more care and they're more empathetic than than uh, my experience with male doctors and dentists. And, and I said, um, it's interesting because any given individual has different uh, attributes. You can think of them as a point in a high dimensional space. You know, like I'm uh, American born Chinese, I weigh a certain weight, I so forth. Um, and I said, any race or ethnicity has a distribution of people, right? And any, for every Mother Teresa, uh, there's a Hitler. For every Gandhi, there's a Stalin. So to think that I can infer something about you as complicated as your productivity just from the race that you have, which is the amount of melatonin in your skin, that's kind of uh, amazing to have that belief. And it doesn't make sense if you think about it from a mathematical statistical way, right? Uh, And it also sort of insults or devalues people because it doesn't treat people as individuals. It treats people as sort of avatars or averages of the race they have or the gender they have, right? So, but... Um, I thought about it some more and I said to her, I think the real problem is racism is about wrong beliefs. So someone who's um, uh, a purple person might think orange people are not uh, uh, good at uh, math. So I'm not going to hire an orange person to do math. 
that belief can be wrong, but it's never going to be corrected because they never hire someone. And the other thing is um, people have incentives to hold beliefs besides their accuracy. So this is a, 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 not news to people, but it was news to economists um, that and lawyers, because we tend to think about information as something that helps us make better decisions. So you should always want more information unless the cost is too high. But for real people, information is not just to help them make decisions. Information has an effect, affective value, positive or negative. So for example, um, my partner mentioned that people often take a test and they have to pay for this test for the BRCA, I think one gene for breast cancer, or people take an AIDS test, but then they don't go back to find out the result. Because as long as they don't know, they can believe they don't have the disease. Mm -hmm. Once they find out, they, they can't believe that anymore. And the third dimension of an information acquisition is um, identity. So if the information threatens who you think you are, or if the information contradicts the beliefs of your spouse or friends or coworkers, you may not want to um, see that information because then you'll be ostracized. So it's interesting how people put different weights on these three things, decision-making, um, uh, uh, how much it helps your decision-making information, then the positive or negative emotion of your information, and then the identity uh, aspect of information. And if you put a huge weight on identity and affect, it might trump the uh, information to realize that race, ethnicity, gender are not really helpful in figuring out someone's productivity. You have to know that person as an individual. So, so I ended up writing a couple of articles about that. And then I thought about it. And someone said, yeah, but who reads law review articles? Just law students and law professors. Why don't you write a book? for a more general audience that someone in the airport can uh, pick up and read. I said, okay, is that my target audience? People running between flights, um, delayed. <laughs> so yeah, so I thought about it and I thought about the title of Disrupting Racism because I thought, you know, we may not be able to cure and racism. I, I, I remember Kamala Harris said, uh, racism is a virus, which is true, but I don't know how you can inoculate someone from racism uh, although I think most kids are not racist, um, they'll play with anyone who will play with them. They have to learn to be racist. And who do they learn that from? From their parents or from other adults. So really, we want to help, help people unlearn this false belief. And that's what my book is about. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Very cool. So when you think about kind of the, so Jackie and I are both data people and in HR, that means nothing compared to what you know from an economic <laughs> perspective, let's be very clear, like numbers and math, um, but we are very much data-driven folks, both of us. And so I, you know, for the HR person that's listening to this, what is your take, you know, from the, from the viewpoint that you have, kind of the, the math viewpoint, the economics law, all of these things about some of the changes that are going on right now where DEI is being taken out of, you know, university programs and out of, you know, obviously just a lot going on from a political standpoint. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's unfortunate and sad because I think um, if we teach people to basically respect other humans, regardless of their race or gender or sexual orientation, that's actually a better way to um, prepare people for work, right? Because you often work in teams, not alone. And in teams, you want people who have different experiences, different mindsets, different um, ways of seeing things. Because if you're all identical clones, you're not gonna have um, solutions that come out of this give and take of differences. And I, I don't wanna, 
date myself, but I will. So I think in the original Star Trek, um, the idea is that you want um, diversity in infinite dimensions. I'm getting the quote wrong, but the idea, and someone's actually um, uh, proved this mathematically, um, that um, most problems uh, are better solved by people who have diverse um, backgrounds, viewpoints, uh, histories than people who have the same, right? Because if they're people who are the same, you, you just need one of them. You don't need the team. The point of the team is to um, have people um, communicate information, uh, experiences that others have not had. I mean, to me, it's, I mean, I teach, I used to teach business associations. And when I talk about um, corporate boards, I always say it's amazing that corporate boards are old white men because half the population is women. And soon the, the uh, population will have more people who are non-white than white. And I said, it's not clear to me the old white men will know what things uh, women want to buy or uh, people of color want to buy, right? So I said, it's in the interest of a company to maximize profits to have this diversity. Um, but I think things are slow to change. And I think people think of it as a zero something. If we have women and minorities, that's fewer uh, Caucasian men. Well, and I think, you know, we talk about it all the time within DEI where it's like, you know, sharing these things or we're actually talking about it doesn't necessarily mean it's taking away from you. In fact, it's adding more to you. Right. And it is, it was funny. This is a, I will get there. I'll talk about it in the circle. You'll understand. We'll get there. So I am a Newcastle United fan in the Premier League in, in football slash soccer, as we call it in the United States. So last week, um, I was in Las Vegas with my sister. Um, I'm black. She's black. And the game was at 930. And it said, I was like, I was like, where do we? She was like, where do we have to go? I mean, it's Vegas. I was like, the sports are everywhere, but we're going to this pub on Tropicana Boulevard. It's um, the Crown and something. It's a, a British pub, open 24 hours. And I'm going to eat dangerous mash, and I'm going to have a Newcastle at 9.30 in the morning. She said, okay. So we go in, right, and everyone's staring at us because there's these two absolutely gorgeous Black women standing in front of the bar, and they're like, and I have the Newcastle jersey on. So they're like, what is happening, right? Oh, so we nice. sit in our little corner. And by the end of it, I had already taught my sister all the chants and all the things. By the end of it, we're hugging each other. We're best friends. Call me when you go back to Vegas. We sat for another hour. And then this past week, we were watching them play. And they put our picture on the TV. Wow. And she was like, that's so weird. I was like, yeah, but it just shows, you know. We can extend and expand if given the opportunity. Once you have the opportunity to say, oh, you like soccer? I like soccer. Right. You like beer? I like beer. We can look at some of those things, you know? And it's interesting how people perceive that was very different than the look we got when we walked into the place. And, and giving yourself to these opportunities, I think, is what's hard. It's getting over the fear Yes. And trying to, you know, have some kind of plan in mind, but the understanding you might not know everything, right? That you think you know, right? So it's, it's, you have to have some humility, and again, I'm going to quote Yoda: "Fear leads to hate, hate leads to anger, anger leads to uh, I forget what, but something like tragedy or bad things happening, right?" So part of the thing is that people may fear other races or groups because they didn't interact with them. Then it's very easy for politicians to play in that fear and say. Those people are responsible for your um, um, having um, economic misfortune. I think that's what Hitler did with the Jews. And then so it's easy. If you find someone else's scapegoat, it's not my fault, right? Um, what was the, uh, I think, uh, in Roger Rabbit, uh, um, I forget the woman's character, but uh, she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. Jessica uh, Rabbit. Jessica, Jessica Rabbit. Rabbit. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Um, yesterday, my partner told me this. She went to Siena College to visit her nephew, our nephew. And uh, she said, uh, um, he, he originally was Saturday, but he said, I have something to do Saturday. Can we make it Sunday? She goes, sure. And if you want to bring a friend, that's fine. So he bought five friends, five tall, white um, um, friends of his, some from class, some from the dorm, you know, just friends. 
and she's Hispanic. And um, our nephew is her sister's um, son. Her sister married someone who's black. So he's an Afro uh, hair. And they went to a Chinese, uh, a Chinese restaurant and the waitress looked at our hair and said, wow, that's so unusual. Can I touch your hair? And my partner said, uh, okay, we know you like his hair. Uh, like if some man said to you, I want to touch your hair, you would be probably uh, freaked out. So let's move on from the hair thing to ordering sushi now. And I said, <laughs> I, I said, you know, I, I saw a video, a half an hour program, I think of Stanford women's volleyball team, and they played in China. And in China, you know, they were like, these are tall, white, blonde women. They were like everywhere. It was like a big deal. And then she went at, on her way driving back, she went into a Wawa. I don't know if you, okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like a 7-Eleven. So she went in and everyone was white. The customers, the, the, so she she thought, okay. And they looked at her strange, probably the same way they looked at you when you went in there. So she she got what she wanted and she got in line where three white men before her and some something in the back of the register, like some machine made some strange noise. So she looked at it, but then she helped the three men. Then it came to my partner's turn and she went to fix that. And my partner thought, what is that about? Why couldn't you fix it earlier? Right. Why couldn't you wait I'm done? And when she came back, she was very um, curt with my partner. So my partner thought, instead of escalating and being curt with her, I'm going to try to charm her. And and she did. And and it's sort of like, you know, and then the person when I saw, you know, even though she's Hispanic, she likes the same foods or, you know, she watches the same TV programs. So she's not so bad. And I said, that was very um, clever of you. And I said, also very, um, you have to have a certain amount of patience and a certain amount of goodwill that you uh, assume other people have so that that can work. If you then harden yourself to them, it's just going to escalate. And I said, the really weird thing about some of the hatred that, that people have is that we're living on this planet, which, of course, uh, Carl Sagan, I can't do his voice, would say it's a tiny blue dot in space. And it's like a life life raft. So if you don't like someone, it doesn't make sense to drill a hole on the other side of the life raft because you're all gonna sink. And that's what's happening, I think, with the global warming, which I think is a nice euphemism for a climate catastrophe um, that we're having now. And if we don't solve it because of the nonlinearities and tipping points, I don't know. I mean, just this morning, my partner and I were talking about um, whether humanity will survive. She says, mm. with AI, you know, we could we, it's like the Terminator. We could develop AI that wants to kill us. We could uh, have viruses that we introduce for bio Wi-Fi. I said, we could have many things to kill us. I said, we're very good at destroying things. The question is um, whether we have the maturity to not use those things, to realize those things are actually... Um, very destructive, not just of the people we hate, but of ourselves. I said, I don't know if people will recognize this lesson, but I said, I think that's why it's important to teach children. As Whitney Houston says, children are our future. And I always say they can't be our past and they can't be our present. So they have to be our future. It's a pathology. But it's really true that, you know, you want to teach children or you want to have children. You don't want to teach them racism because I don't think, I don't think they're born racist. Um, they might like I remember when my partner would take um her niece and nephews to go to see movies, they might see someone who's like on crutches and they would stare at this person because they and my partner would say, Well, you know, what happened is the person fell or something happened, so it's temporary. And and then one of them fell and they were on crutches, right? So I mean, I think if you teach kids about diversity, equity, inclusion, and actually have them do it then maybe in the future, there's hope for humanity. There's a, a historian of science named Thomas Kuhn, and he's written a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he said, sometimes you can't convince old people to adopt new ideas. You just have to wait for the old people to die and the young people to grow up with the new ideas. And I think that may be true, right? In, in some sense, I think people who are younger today are more understanding of the fact that it's important to have tolerance. It's important to have humility that other people with different experiences doesn't mean they're worse or better. They're just different. And their, their different experiences may be valuable to you and helpful to you. I always say like, if you play a game with someone who is, um, you're afraid of them 
and they help you win, then you change your mind. It's not to play to compete, but play with us. You know. And I said, if we could sit all these people down and play some video games, you know, um, maybe that'll help. I said, it's just amazing how people have this hatred and, and it's based on a belief that's wrong, but they won't correct it. They won't update it. So I said, you know, th there is hope, but there's also um, reason to think we may not um, survive, <laughs> right? If we... Well, it makes me think of when you think about how people have access to you now that yes. we didn't have access. Like if I wanted to learn, it was the people that were in my proximity, whether it was at my school or where I worship or where I buy clothes. Like, so you, you only stay in those small communities. But then you go online, especially, you know, the way that it's like some AI is for good, where it's exposing you to things that you've never seen before, right. you know, how to make candy. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, and when I was a kid, I was delusional in thinking as I was watching the Olympics, I love the Olympics. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking, what if I was supposed to be the world's greatest figure skater, but my parents never took me skating so I didn't know how I was going to reach that. How would I know? And my, I would ask my parents truly, and they would be like, well, you would have to believe that God would put you in a situation where eventually you would have kids. And I was like, well, when I have kids, I'm going to expose them to as many things as possible so that they can make different decisions based on real experience instead of, you know, what they have to look up at the library or whatever. And now I think that they're pretty inquisitive. And a lot of us, especially younger, now you don't know what's going to pop up, right? Like yep. you don't know what ad or what food or what location. And and it's interesting how they have access where things look more normal, where other generations, it didn't look normal because all you could do was look left and white, le left and white. That's what I said. I meant right, left and right. So you could see like what's around you. And having that exposure helps normalize things and there's yeah. so many things now that you would never think of like 30 years ago like that doesn't yeah. even make any sense that why would people do that i mean my kids always will ask me when they were watching old movies like like that's such a problematic they're like this is you know what kind of culture is this and it's like right. this was the united states this is america yeah yeah, yeah. welcome well, to american. the 90s it was the 90s <laughs> the 90s were wild what was happening but in a know, lot of the eighties. Well, it, I love what you're saying, Jackie. And, and it, it just is so like the whole conversation about exposure to things that folks maybe have not been exposed to, but also the, you know, as you said, Peter, the, the next generation being our future, you know, I, I, I'm sure you all saw the, the announcement that Mitt Romney made about retiring and that, oh, we should all be retiring and letting the younger generation, yes. you know, yeah. come in. And it was like, I was like, yes, because these older white men, like back to your comment on the boards, like, do they know what the customer of 2023, 2024 and on want? Do they understand like some of the nuances? I, I, I always love when like Zuckerberg or, you know, any type of technical person is, it, it, you know, on the Senate floor being questioned about whatever. And they're asking these questions and you're like, oh, Nelly, like you don't. You're in trouble. No, yeah, you don't. Yeah. You should not be on the Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I went to a Federal Reserve, um, one of the local banks. They each specialize in different things. So the Philadelphia one, um, because it's close to Delaware, I think, does credit credit uh, credit cards and and uh, consumer credit. And so I was sitting next to the only black person in the room. And I said to him, oh, like during a break, so where do you teach her? He goes, I, I'm in the Library of Congress. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, we, uh, there's a bunch of us in the Library of Congress who learned, go learn stuff. He goes, I was trained as an economist. So that if any congressman or senator wants, they can call us to t teach them about something. Because he goes, they just won a popularity contest. That's all they did. They may know nothing about AI or inflation or unemployment. So instead of uh, you know them being uh, embarrassed, they asked us to give them a quick crash course. I said, that's great. He goes, the only problem is they have to ask. If they don't ask, mm. we can't teach them. I said, that's not great. I said, they should like be mandatory or something so that you know they um, get exposed to different subjects in different areas. Um, 
and 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 I really think it is the case that um people have a chance with this little thing that they have in their pockets to be exposed to different things. You mentioned YouTube. I was talking to my primary care um uh, physician and she said uh you should learn how to cook. I said I took some cooking classes, but I'm not sure like the uh like the uh the uh, adult education at the high school near me. She goes, YouTube. She goes, you learn, you can learn to do anything on YouTube. I said, well, I said, I don't know if it'd be correct, right? Um, and but it's sure like people now know about dim sum, for example, which is dingxing in Mandarin, um, because it's it just it just spread, right? And um I think there is a potential with um um browsers or um you know computers for people to access other lifestyles instead of watching cat videos um hopefully that'll be the case <laughs> but it, you know it's very true but i i love the story you're telling about the the gentleman that works at the library of congress because we have seen i think way too many examples recently of folks that clearly have not reached out to those right, folks getting right. additional information so uh good that they they should be doing that so I want I'm I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. I would love to hear your thoughts just from a um economics perspective. Uh, you know, obviously we have a lot going on with uh the economy right now, and would love to hear your take on community banks and on some of these things that are being uh pitched, you know, like pitched as ways to become more diverse or to support more diverse uh companies groups etc what are your thoughts on on you know some of these different diversity i won't call them initiatives but kind of the community driven ideas imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner welcome to the tech entrepreneur on the mission podcast this podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from b2b SaaS ceos who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. So, uh, help me understand, how does a community bank work and how is it gonna improve diversity, equity, and inclusion? So like using a uh, a black owned bank or using, you know, that's one of the things that has been pushed to kind of help the uh, the economies of neighborhoods that maybe have not had funding before or to get uh, more leverage for them to, you know, and, you know, small business loans, things along those lines that are focused on folks from marginalized communities like what are your thoughts and i sorry i probably did not ask that correctly and i apologize <laughs> but oh. what are your thoughts on some of those activities i think that's a great thing because i think that i mean there is research showing that children pick up a lot of their financial habits from their parents so if your parents are disorganized or don't pay the bills on time you go oh that's the way things are done if like for example my parents would only buy things with cash they would only buy a car with cash a house with cash and I, you know, that you know, there's things called credits, you know. And she goes, No, we don't wanna, we don't wanna owe people things. Um, whereas I think other people, you know, max out their credit card and live from paycheck to paycheck. And um I think banks um are things that I remember as a kid going to a bank, they used to give out toasters, um, and and <laughs> other sort of uh things for opening an account. And I also remember the idea of a Christmas uh club account I think or Christmas so the idea is they take your money um there's very little interest but they basically keep it away from you until Christmas so it's a mechanism or device to impose self-control on you when you don't have self-control yourself and I think having banks cater to particular demographic I think there's one bank in New York City it's all women um right and and the idea then is that you don't feel so out of place like you're the only one there I mean, I was talking to my students and I said, it's not enough just to have one black person on the corporate board because that's the token black. You need at least two so they can talk to each other and interact. And 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 I think banking is something that really is um, important, uh, access to credit and also access to the stock market. 
So there are studies in countries where people don't trust other people. They don't really invest in stocks. And most people do not get rich by putting money in a savings account. You get wealthy by investing in stocks. And it's not that you should, my mother said to me at 93, she goes, once I retire, I'm going to study the stock market and understand uh, uh, which ones to pick. I said, I'll tell you right now. Uh, there, the, but if you study the stock market, if you believe in efficient capital markets, there's nothing to be gained by, you know, unless you have inside information, which is illegal. Um, and if you believe in the behavioral economics, which is that people make mistakes, they would say the same things. It's not clear that you can figure out what mistakes people make. Both sides say you should just buy a um, ETF, electronically traded fund, that follows the S&P 500. So as long as America is doing well, it'll do well. If America is doing not well, I think your stocks are not the only problem you have. As Seinfeld said, if you have blood in your shirt, maybe dry cleaning is not the most important thing that you should right. be thinking about. Right? Right. <laughs> so, right. so um, and I tell my mother this and my aunt this, she's 92. And they thought, uh, and then they saw this VU, which I told them to invest in. They go, it's going up. I said, because the American economy is going up. But I said, also, you have to be able to tolerate volatility. And I said to someone, I said, I like my temperature like my stocks. Um, <laughs> high mean, low variance. So, so the idea is, right? But I think a lot of people are inexperienced with these things. Like they don't understand um, if you want to make money, you have to take risk, right? So um, a lot of things that economists take for granted, I think it's really important to teach people, speaking of YouTube, personal finance. I have a former student, um, Terry O'Dean, who's, who's made up these, who's, who's created these videos you know about how his parents did get credit cards until the when is it the 60s and and um they like my parents bought everything you know without credit and how you know um i think it i don't know if it's still the case that when you go to the bookstore they would have uh, a bag and in the bag there are all these credit card offers and i think the danger with that is younger people may not understand um these are not gifts i have to pay this money back and if it's at a high interest rate the uh the cup of uh i don't know coffee at starbucks which is four dollars will end up being 25 dollars. or if i get an overdraft charge you know for um something then it's you know so i think there's a lot of ways as elizabeth warren says that there are these tricks and traps that banks do so it's important to have people be familiar with banks but also realize like um someone joked a credit score is not really a great thing because it's a debt score um, and one economist, Michael Spence, who shared the Nobel Prize with uh, two other economists about information economics, he said one way to develop credit is to borrow money from a bank at, say, 12% and put the money back in the bank at 5%. So you lose 7%. But you, when you pay it back, you pay it back on time and you have to take out of your pocket. Because people without a credit history, they consider risky, right? So women for a long time, if their um, husband died, they would have no credit. And the other thing I think that's dangerous is when, um, like in a couple, uh, the division of labor is the man deals with finances. Um, everyone should learn about finance. Everyone should learn about you know credit and stocks because A, it's interesting, but B, it's part of your survival. And um, I said this to uh, my partner, I said, you know, we teach trigonometry in high school. I don't know how often I've used trigonometry. I think it's never. Um, but I think we don't, if we teach how to make vegan dim sum, that would actually be helpful to me now. Okay. <laughs> I don't eat nutritiously. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like that's so important. I was watching, um, I don't know if any of you want to be watched Succession that was on HBO Cinemax, but it makes me think about equity so much because here you have a company. Um, a family, and it's loosely um, based on the Murdoch family, right? And there's a scene where their cousin, his name is Greg, goes, now that you have all this money, what are you going to do? And the, he says to um, his coworker person, have you ever been to California Pizza Kitchen? And the guy was like, no, <laughs> I haven't. He was like, oh, it's the best. And he was like, no, it's not. He was like, you haven't been there. He was like, no. And I'm not going to California Pizza Kitchen, and you shouldn't either. And it made you think like there's all these lines of stuff that is passed on generationally. If you come from yeah. a family of wealth, they know what fine dining is. This other person didn't. So to him, all he could think about was 
California Pizza Kitchen. And so you right. get to this point where we are now where it's like, yes, we want to be inclusive. We have to, we want to have these inclusive environments. We want more people in leadership positions. You still have to remember all, if whether they went to college or not, the, the majority, it, it's segmented in what they actually learn as far as the real world. I mean, yeah. this year, um, I had a hysterectomy. I didn't know anything about it. And it's like, all women are gonna go through this decision at some point. There's no place for any of us to go. And if you weren't in a family that was sharing, you know, absolutely nothing. And that's where equity comes in. Like, if you're the head of this organization, there's also rules that people don't talk about that you weren't privy to if you weren't invited into the room. And so many people talk about seats at the table, but you really want to get in the room and mingle and network for a really yes. long time to make sure yeah. that you didn't pick up the wrong chair because yes. you should be stuck in the wrong chair for a really yeah. long time. Yeah. No, I think that's that's absolutely crucial. It's not just inclusion, but it's sort of knowledge of the social norms or of the sort of hidden things that um, may not be on YouTube, but maybe on YouTube also. Uh, you know, so um, my my niece Anna, who's uh, just turned twelve. She said to me, Uncle Peter, free food is good. I said, not always. <laughs> I said, and then she went with her dad to a French restaurant. She goes, oh, it was very fancy. And I think I like French food now. I said, because of the fanciness? <laughs> right, right. right. right? And, and so I think you're right. I mean, um, people who are wealthy, they just pick up these things and take them for granted. Uh, my partner said this that you know she went to hunter college high school and she said all of her classmates were wealthy and when she went to their apartments she was just amazed at how they lived and i said i went to horace Mann, which is a prep school in riverdale at least for to, from seventh to ninth grade and it was the same way i said you know um intergenerational transfer of wealth happens intergenerational transfer of trauma also happens um but i said we, we really need to sort of um figure out ways to uh, provide equitable access to educational opportunities. And, I, you know, every, every I don't know, every, most lawyers predicted the affirmative action decisions by the Supreme Court. And I saw so we can't use race-based uh, affirmative action, but we can still use other kinds like um, socioeconomics, um, you know, adversity. But I said the real thing I think about this is during COVID, we use Zoom. Even though Zoom can be finicky, it worked. And some students uh, actually emailed me and said, Professor, I'm glad that we have Zoom because I can chat with you without the whole class hearing this and thinking I'm clueless. And also I think, and some people have written about this, white men tend to just blurt out whatever's in their minds without, because that's okay. Women and minorities tend to think, well, I don't wanna say something stupid. I don't wanna say something that's uh, not thoughtful. So they take longer to think about something. And also you could put them in um, those chat, no, what are they called? The rooms, breakout. Uh, breakout rooms, right? So they could, you know, talk amongst themselves. And yet when, when um, a year later, when COVID had not ended, it's still not over, but I think people are tired <laughs> of it. Um, they, uh, like my, my, my partner, uh, she's an OBGYN, she went, to a, she went to her doctor and she goes, everyone there was not wearing a mask except her. And the receptionist seemed annoyed that she was wearing a mask. <laughs> You're, you're you're showing us uh, you're showing us how good you are and, and how we're not and um, and um, I said you know it's interesting how there's so many things that are um, useful to learn and they may not be learned because they're not obvious but I said Zoom really showed us we can reach a lot more people there was a professor at Berkeley who wrote this op-ed in the New York Times saying we should clone Stanford why do we have a Stanford in Italy. Why not have a Stanford in Houston, Stanford in Dallas, Stanford in New Orleans, Stanford in Miami, right? Because Stanford says they want to they want to educate and democratize education. Well, if you have a two percent acceptance rate, that's really not quite the way you do. No. And I said, you know, Harvard, these schools that are very selective. If if the reason they're selective is just to be um, valuable, quote unquote, or to be uh, statusy, that's not a good reason. And in some sense, I also say calculus at Harvard is the same as calculus at a community college. I mean, calculus is calculus, wherever you learn it. But um, if you have classmates who have different backgrounds than you, you learn something from them, right? And that, and that but the, it, it is weird that the justification for diversity in the, the jurisprudence for uh, 
affirmative action was that uh, basically we want our white kids to be exposed to uh, the black kids experience. That's a very strange justification for affirmative action. Um, but I, I really think, you know, we could clone schools. We could have Zoom so that everyone who's qualified to go to Stanford or Harvard can go. Um, but I don't know that'll happen because that'll take away the elite elite uh, uh, status or selectivity. Um, but I said a lot of stuff, you know, like uh, Jackie was saying, you can learn on the web. Like I was saying to my niece, Anagan, I said, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can learn um, from uh, for free, like about uh, data. You know, she's she really likes playing video games. I said, instead of just playing them, why don't you learn how to be a video game designer or make video games? I said, I think everyone at Stanford used to take uh, Econ uh, you know, 101. But this year, I think the most popular class was how to design your own app. Because everyone wants to do that and be, you know, and, and, and speaking of popularity, I think at Harvard, the class was Act 10, uh, most popular, just principles of economics. But then it became positive psychology, which I think shows that a lot of people there were not happy and they didn't know how to be happy. Um, one of my nieces, another one said to me, Uncle Peter, can you play with me? I said, I have to finish writing this. She goes, what are you writing? I said, I'm writing an article on happiness. And she goes, on happiness? I see that. She goes, shouldn't everyone study happiness? I said, they should, but it doesn't happen. And I said, we think money or status will make us happy, but that doesn't. Or if it does, it's very short term. I said, relationships, having meaning and purpose in your life. These are the things that make you truly happy. And I said, a lot of people don't seem to, their life, the way they run their lives doesn't seem to reflect that. And I said, also, if we taught people that, um, maybe we'd have uh, more peace and more, um, you know, less consumerism, less pursuit of uh, materialism. And and then she goes, oh, but can you get me a Barbie, Malibu Barbie for Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> that was a sure, 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 uncle, but also. Uh -huh. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I would love, you know, we are, we are at time. And so unfortunately, uh, we, we have to wrap up, but would love for you to share. So first off your, your book is disrupting racism and we'll put a link in the show notes so folks can uh, go out and buy it. Um, but would love, you know, what are one or two things that you would like for our listeners to hear from this episode? Well, I think the main thing is to not think racism has to be that way, right? That racism can be disrupted. Um, part of it is through being more um, inclusive. To, uh, the idea is that if you work and, and play with other people who are different than you and realize they can help you, then um, maybe your racism will be toned down a bit. Another one is to have positive conversations with people, right? Um, there's a professor, Alison Brooks at Harvard Business School, who's writing a book about uh, how to talk gooder because she says most people don't know how to talk. They don't know how to listen either. They just, you know, um, spew information. But that's not always the purpose of conversation. Sometimes the purpose of conversation is just to um, be empathetic. And, and my partner says this to me too, which I think is a common um, male, female thing. She goes, I'm telling you this problem, not because I want you to solve it. I said, then why are you telling me this problem? She goes, so that you can empathize with me. And I said, there's a scene in the movie, uh, White Men Can't Jump where uh, uh, I forget, Rosie Perez's character says, I'm thirsty. And Woody Harrelson says, I'll get you some water. And she goes, I can get my own water. I don't need you to get me water. I want you to say, I too have known thirst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think um, to, to, we can do things as individuals and as a society to disrupt racism. Uh, from a society uh, point of view, one is to have organizational and social norms, organizational cultures which are more positive and supportive of people with different backgrounds, right? If you teach, like when I took history, we never um, talked much about the history of anybody except white people and up to like World War II, right? And, and if you look at the history, Asians, Blacks, later uh, all the different groups actually helped America become what it is today. And so I think it's really kind of, interesting that we've gotten to where we are where we're a very polarized society and it's just uh not a great way to run a democracy and i think as barack obama said you know the american dream has not been fulfilled it's an experiment that we haven't you know quite lived up to the promise 
And I think it's important to say to our young people, you can make this a better uh, country. And um, one way to do it is to sort of um, be inclusive, be humble, be empathetic, and be mindful. So I'll just end with one last story. My 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 cousin, he was acting up. So my partner said, David, you need to get a timeout. He goes, no, 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 I know what I need. I learned this in school. I need to go hesitate. We said, what? It was meditate. But he kept the idea of meditation, which is to stop, to hesitate, to stop and think, is this what I want to do, right? Does this make sense for me and for society and for that other person? I'll stop there. Awesome. Thank you. Jackie, what you got? Just stay curious. Yes. You know, you've had a lot, worn a lot of different hats and kind of crept into a lot of different places just to be able, curious and bring that information in. Once you learn something new, share it with as many people as you can. Yeah, I said this at a conference recently that if uh, someone said, you know, what do you want people to take away? I said, if you can know something at the end of the day that you didn't know at the beginning of the day, that's a great day. And I said, there's nothing wrong with admitting you don't know something. You want to learn something because then you benefit from this. And I said, saying you know everything is A, impossible. Um, B, it's sort of uh, arrogant, right? You want to be humble and you want to be curious and you want to think of learning as a lifelong process. It doesn't end. It doesn't have to end. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to say the one, the, the, well, two things, the Library of Congress thing that they actually yes. have folks that can provide information yes. to our yeah. uh, political leaders. That, that's a good <laughs> bit of information for all of us yes. to be aware of that, that's yes. something that we can tell them to go do. Yes. Yes. But I, I think the other piece for me is also just that, that whole idea of, you know, from the money perspective and the psychology around money yeah. and how we think about it. And, you know, you made the point of, you're not going to make money by putting your money in a savings account. You're going to go, you're going to make money by looking at the S&P 500. You're going to, you know, look at it, some of these other things, but folks aren't taught that. And, and so it is also the go use YouTube, whether it's to make dim sum or it's to learn yes. more about how to actually uh, get stocks and whatnot and kind of get your portfolio put together. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. We truly appreciate it. Um, and uh, we will uh, we will have this out for folks soon. So thank you so much for joining us. This is Katie Van Horn. And this is Jackie Clayton. Bye. Bye. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.